Listeners everywhere, welcome to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan, the weekly fix for your screen addiction and a trusted source for discussion of all things film and television. Please keep in mind that for the purposes of this podcast, Joel and Ryan are not acting as journalists, but rather fellow moving picture enthusiasts. All of their opinions should be taken as such. Also, please be warned that while Joel and Ryan may seem like petulant children, they are, in fact, adults who may occasionally use adult language. While they promise to bleep out all the worst words, it's a good bet you will still understand what they were saying. And now, with no further ado, here's Joel and Ryan. Hello, hello, hello. Hold on a second. Let me see if I can find another long thing to play before we start the show. <laughs> our, thing, uh, no. our thing is slightly shorter than the HBO feature presentation fanfare from 1983. That is true. I'm that gratified is by true. that. And it has that, well, some useful information in it that that other thing doesn't have. <laughs> that's true. Uh, that's true. Our uh, The voice of the show, uh, our, our, our wonderful AI, Sarah. Yeah. Um, has some uh imparts some good wisdom to uh to our listeners welcome welcome to the movie show with joel and ryan i am joel and i'm ryan and uh we're back joining you again uh at this uh at the end of september here fall is in the air and um uh yeah like school is in full swing and when i think of school i think of after school and when i think of after school i think about wondering what's on cable Hmm. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, so that is, uh, that is what we are going to talk about today. We are going to, uh, going to visit, uh, the early days of, of, uh, pay television, um, with a little episode that we are calling, I saw it on HBO. And in this, yeah, this year we are. So we are going to be talking about the movies from 1980 to 1983. So we were, uh, so this is in the very dawn of, um, of cable television and, uh, and HBO, you know, not having a whole lot of, uh, of, um, um, uh, of, what am I trying to think of content of not, not many titles, I guess that they could play. It's a Uh, lot like the early days in MTV, where if you had made a video, even if you, missed the top 40 even if your video was made in 1981 and it was now 1983 Mm -hmm. back when mtv was a radio station with video they just would have to fill it up with songs and a lot of the hit songs of the day didn't even have videos so they really had you know beggars couldn't be choosers at that point essentially You, you were you were all songs all the time with some news breaks and maybe a concert (laughs) on the weekend that was the yeah. channel and HBO. Uh, of course, it's got a whole. It's got a whole. It had a whole, you know, century of films really to choose from, almost. But it it wasn't going to sell subscriptions by, by playing the Maltese Falcon or you know what I mean. Like it really <laughs> couldn't. Yep. It really had to be current, which means it had to play. It had to be like the new release wall at the at the blockbuster. It had to give you what was new and hot that you had missed. That's what people were interested in, and so as a consequence, it played every movie that it could get the rights to show, yep. which at, at that time were relatively cheap. Um, and it actually had to eschew 
big films like like Superman 78 and some of those type of things that might have gotten watched a lot, the rights for those were really expensive and the networks would outbid them for them to mm-hmm. show them exclusively. You know, it was an era where that Sunday night at the movies from ABC, like that was a big deal. And that oh, when, yeah. you, when you first saw a big theatrical movie on TV, three years later, its network premiere was, was a, was a big deal. And as a result, HBO, not completely, but to some degree, were, were left scrounging for the sort of leftovers of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was a lot of films over and over again. And it was a lot of films that didn't, that weren't big hit movies whose rights were easy to secure for long periods of time and hidden in there. And you can argue with us as to whether any of these are gems or not, or, you know, but, but truly hitting in the hidden in there were films that had, they had marketing, had they been easier to market or, you know, what have you would have found their audiences because they did find them on HBO. A friend of the show, Bill has been asking me to do this show for a long time. And I apologize to him in advance. Some of our favorites aren't on here. There aren't, there aren't science fiction and fantasy movies and stuff. Those, those tend to find their way onto their own shows. Although they, there were certainly part of the picture here, a big part of it. Um, And there's some other things that we sort of skipped, but I think we got a pretty good collection of adventure films and comedies and and things that, uh, with only an exception or two, really wouldn't find their way onto another list. So yeah, and that was the big qualifier here. Is just like, well, boy, that are we gonna? Is that gonna make it onto a different list? So maybe we don't talk about it here. Uh, These ones that we are talking about. yeah, all really a lot of them really really cool movies. Um, you know the the thing about movies like this is you know the people that are our age that you know we grew up watching these things over and over and over again on HBO. Right. The people that are now making movies are our generation, um, and, and you know there are influences. There are you know it, you know you see. Uh, you know, you, you see some um, some of the the these films kind of creeping into uh, uh, into the styles and into some of the uh, the just into into current filmmaking. Um, and it so, starts uh, with, you know, our tagline that we stole from Dennis Miller. Uh, he used to say H- HBO stood for Hey, Beastmaster's on because Beastmaster used to get played. Uh, uh, all the time it, yeah, you didn't was, have to tape it onto a tape to watch it it just really if you hung out long enough it was like an, yep. a rerun of law and order you know if you just turn a couple channels you will find one it is happening right now yep. and and that, <laughs> that really felt like it was true of beastmaster more than any you know beastmaster the dark fantasy the the third most popular dark fantasy of 1982 but <laughs> but uh um, you know we've talked about it on the show before i prefer it vastly prefer it to conan the barbarian and the, the other more ballyhooed films of that year because there's a a weird wicked sort of magic and and because of the animals i think is what does yeah. it because yeah. of the animals, there's a childlike 
window into this really horrific, yep, overly sexualized, super violent. PG-rated film. I defy you. I defy you to watch Beastmaster and not want to ferret afterwards. Yeah, exactly. You know, we've talked about that phenomenon on the show, but we're not going to go into Beastmaster. It's not part of this list because, like I said, it it had its own list, and and maybe we we never got too into it. Maybe Beastmaster will even be a deep dive at some point. It's deep dive worthy. (laughs) Oh, well, hey, any chance to talk about Mark Singer and for me to get that Mark Singer wig out? Mark Singer in a a loincloth. You're going to wear the loincloth too? I dare you. Uh, Yeah, I don't think any of our uh, listeners... Well, I mean, that would be one that I'm definitely like, hey, listen to this podcast. Don't don't check. Maybe not check out the YouTube (laughs) version of it. This is the one where the visual aspect (laughs) is a detriment to your enjoyment. Um... (laughs) <laughs> but Beastmaster, <laughs> I mean, truly, I did tape it off of Showtime as it was the the HBO Junior, and mm-hmm. um, which they were given away when we finally got cable with you know for free for some months, mm-hmm. uh, in hopes that you would forget to uh, unsubscribe from it. And luckily, my my dad did just that; forgot that it was part of his bill. <laughs> Uh, yep, but we never um, did have HBO growing up. But it's this—it's all the same. It's the same all over. Yep. That you know what I mean. The the experience is very much the same. So we're gonna start out. We're actually our first movie on our list is a 1979 movie, but that really was proliferated on pay cable uh, mm-hmm. during the 80s. And this is a film we've talked about before too, and a film that won't likely get a deep dive, even though it is much beloved. Uh, I viewed this movie as more of a video store movie than a HBO movie, but I, I think it fits this category and and starts out great. And it's a film, oddly enough, despite its two big stars that are in it, it's a forgotten movie of both of theirs in yeah. a very real way, in a way that a good portion of you listening will have never seen this or maybe even never heard of it because it's... It did have a renaissance on pay cable and at the video store, but that didn't last the way it did for some of these um, to the modern day. It, it's yep. when when that phenomena went away, it sort of also went away. So, Joel, you, I'll let you. Yeah. So, yeah, like Ryan said, this is from 1979, but it really, uh, you know, I certainly didn't see it until uh, 1980. Um, and that is. The Frisco Kid, starring Gene Wilder and Harrison Ford. <laughs> Even seeing their names come across the screen, I believe it's one of those moments, uh, title cards, where they're credited together. But, you know, like Gene Wilder's in the upper left-hand corner yep. and Harrison's down mm-hmm. in the bottom right. Because um, Gene Wilder was the bigger star in 1979. Um but just seeing their names together and it, even the way this movie opens, like it takes a long time for the cocky gunslinger to show up in the movie. It really is about this uh, European uh, Hasidic Jewish rabbi who was sent on a journey all the way to San Francisco, the California gold mining boomtown, which now has a big enough Jewish population that they want to have a synagogue. They don't even have a, a Torah. They don't even have the the Holy Scripture out there with them. So he's he's bringing the Old Testament. They don't call it that, but you get, you're following me. The word Torah, mm-hmm. I think, is the most spoken word in the whole film. It's They say it a hundred times, all the characters. 
but they're, he's bringing this out to them, and then he's going to be their rabbi and their teacher. And in exchange, he's given he's being given the eldest daughter of the elder of the Jewish people who he's been sent a photo of to marry. And she's very, uh, I don't know what the term they used back then, Joel, you, buxom, is that what you call it? Yeah, I would go with buxom. She, yeah, That's so solid. She, yeah, she, she jumps out of the this family photo that they sent to Poland. <laughs> um and he's being sent for a couple of reasons. First of all, you get the idea from the opening council scene that he's this, uh, he doesn't fit, what he, a misfit, basically, amongst his own people. And the elder guy of this council thinks that this, also believes that this will be good for him. Like, this, this is his chance to make his own way, to grow up a little bit. Gene Wilder plays... Such a good-hearted and wonderful character in this. It's really one of my. It's it it's it's one of my favorite performances of his. Truly, yeah. Because there's this. Yeah. He's a he's a he he's he's a really wise person, but he's really really naive and really really innocent at the same time. And those two things combine magically into this guy that comes to life and that's worthy sort of of what gene wilder was in real life i think in a lot of ways yeah um you know what i mean there there always yeah there always was a gentleness to his uh i mean i I should say he could bring a gentleness to to his characters yeah um uh that that always you know that he no matter who he was playing there always seemed to be a um a you know soft nougaty center and uh, in and in a good way, right? And the same is true of Harrison. After a bunch of misadventures in the New World, uh, he finds himself. Uh, what he basically finds himself uh, crossing paths a couple of times with this train robber, bank robber character, this outlaw, played by Harrison Ford, who also is. I mean, it's a great role for him, too, because it's all bravado and it's all... But he's really a dude with a sort of mushy center as yeah. well. And, and it, I don't know yeah, how he's just got a, he's got a He's got a crunchier crust. Right, right. But it's a, yeah. it's a buddy road trip movie. They both yeah. get in trouble. They both find each other kind of on the run together. And then they both decide... I mean, Gene Wilder's character really decides you know, that they, that they should go out to California together. And it, it's hard to explain they're, they're, they break up and come back together a bunch of different ways. The gags are pretty silly. The script is not particularly good or nuanced in any way. Uh, it's directed by, it's the last film, I believe directed by the great, and I'll call him the great Robert Aldrich who directed, you know, whatever happened to baby Jane or whatever. And the Mm -hmm. dirty dozen he directed. And, uh, what's the one with the plane in the desert where they build the other plane to get them out? Uh, Oh, what is that one? Um, come on. Where's the filmography here? uh, That's one. That's my favorite film of his. Okay. Um, 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 yeah, it is, uh, flight of the Phoenix flight of the Phoenix. Yep. uh, Anyway, Aldrich directed war films and sort of exploitation films, in this case, in the case of, you know, Betty Davis and whatever, you know, uh, with old aging stars, he was a Warner Brothers, he didn't only make films at Warner Brothers, but he was largely a Warner Brothers stock director. 
and Warner appreciated him because he made movies that made money, but they did never really thought much of him as an artist. And as a result, you know, he sort of kicked around and stuff. So he, mm-hmm. uh, this is a Warner brothers film and it's, I love it. I love it. I I watched it just every time I could when I was a kid. I love Harrison Ford as a cowboy. It's super fun. He knows he's in a comedy and has having a really good time. And yet Harrison brings it, you know, like a, like a, like a guy who was about to be a movie star should, he really brings it in the key moments. And Wilder is at the top of his game here. And this, for that reason, this really should have been a hit. And it just wasn't, and I don't know why. I don't know what the difference is between this and... I guess I kind of do, but this, uh, to me, this should have gotten more attention than it did in theaters, but it, it came and went with an absolute whimper in theaters. Nobody saw it. And yeah, I, because of the I'm star power... Here, what? As what? I was say, as I was reading here, like, uh, Roger Ebert, you know, uh, a couple of them here talk about um, how Cat Blue was such a big... Uh, you know, it was a much bigger hit uh, for a comic Western that. Yeah. This in 1973. Was... I mean, there's room I know, for. But, yeah. This is, it's come up here. It's yeah. Well, I guess I should say it's coming up a bunch. It's coming up twice here. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, as one, um, as Vincent can be described it as harmless chaos. <laughs> I guess it's not, there's not a lot of chaos to it. It really is the chemistry between these two guys and the, the little misadventures that they, they end up at a, a monastery in a sequence. that I think is really funny. Wilder is fantastic in it. Um, they end up uh, captured by some really nice Indians <laughs> as, as Wilder's character calls it, yep. who, you know, the, the chief native American characters played by this old Italian guy, of course, like it has all <laughs> these tr- yep. tropes and, things that the Westerns of, of, of old had, and it is having some fun with those in a, in a really neat way. Uh, and I just, like I say, I love it because it has a ton of heart. It's got a lot uh, more I, heart than Cat Baloo has. Yeah, Because oh, Cat Baloo really is chaos. It really is yep. nonsense. And uh, I will... We we talked about that with the Three Musketeers films. Dick Lester's Three Musketeers films are fun, but there no there's no heart there. It's not that it's a mean spirited evil film like it has no heart. It's there's nothing there to glom onto. There's nothing there mm-hmm. that that represents humanity. It is all just a big zany send up, and yeah, people like Roger Ebert. No offense, got lay rest in peace, greatest of all time, etc. That's what he like. That's what the generation yep. likes. Our generation liked something a little sweet. We're the ET generation. ET hadn't come out yet, but that's what. But that's what we connect with. We connect with those connections and things. Oh, I'm sorry. You said ET this morning. Uh, just real sidebar. Uh, apropos of nothing. Uh, we had some Neil. We had some Neil Diamond playing this morning because my my ten year old's big into Neil. Oh yeah, Diamond and Heartlight right was playing. And- Heartlight came on, and and I'm just like sitting there driving uh, as uh, as I'm li- as we're listening to turn on your heartlight, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. I had to give a this toast is- at a wedding where uh, when I was 19, my friend Denise's wedding. She was getting married. She was a year older than me, but still, I thought really young. Yeah. But either way, I was asked to come read during the service at the wedding, and and give a toast at the dinner, and I'm like, ah, you know. <laughs> 
I didn't know how to do that when I was 19. Like, I really didn't know how. But the whole yep. family were these dyed-in-the-wool Neil Diamond fans. So I read the lyrics to Heartlight out loud as the toast. <laughs> I did, like, a poetic reading that's, of it. That's spectacular. I love Which it. is fun oh. because you don't, even if you know that song, like, until you get to the chorus, you don't really know what you're hearing when somebody's yeah. just reading it out loud. So it... It worked like a charm, thank God. We're going to take a ride across the moon. Uh, all right, back to uh, Frisco Kid here real quick. I, I love this. Uh, Jordan Hiller called it, uh, critic Jordan Hiller called it one of the 25 essential Jewish movies. Um, and and here's you bet. What, I, I, yeah, I really like this. What he, he called it, he, he praised it for its uncommon innocence and unself-conscious humility. He gets it. And I think that's, I think that kind of nails it. He gets it. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a film about these two misfit people who find each other and find a, what is clearly a lifelong friendship that they're going to have. They achieve, uh, you know, a, a, a down on his luck sort of a guy who's truly going down the wrong path, runs into a rabbi, a teacher, right? And mm -hmm. learns important stuff about himself. And, and the teacher learns a lot as well. And it, mm -hmm. it's just, it's wonderful. It is, it's cheap. It's corny. It's all that stuff. It really is. So we don't want to sell it as some sort of perfect film, but I loved that review. That review is yeah. exactly what it is. And the appeal of the thing, it has plenty of funny jokes, plenty of funny gags, but, but the appeal of the thing is its heart. And it's, it's this sweet story of these people who find each other and really need each other just, you yeah. know, for, for their, to get what they're doing to accomplish their mission, but also to, to be changed by one another. It's a, almost a romance in that way. And I really do love it for that reason. So the, there's um, a scene late in it before we move on. It's one of my favorite scenes yeah. of all time. Uh, Gene Wilder has come to the point in the story where he just thinks he's, he's, he's gone wrong and he's no longer worthy of being a rabbi. And he's certainly no longer worthy of, of, of any, like he's lost, He's lost that uh, – he's never been a cocky character, but he's lost that self-righteousness that he comes into this character with. He really has been tested in a lot of ways, and he feels he's failed the test. So he still wants to deliver the Torah to his family. So he dresses up in Harrison Ford's clothes and tries to do – tries to pretend he's him and tries to do an impression of him while he's giving this Jewish family uh, you know, their holy book. And it just – yeah. It's, it's so just good. one of the greatest things that I've ever seen at the movies. I love that I scene. Forgot. I love I'd that scene so much. That. Yeah, I'd forgotten how wonderful that is. Yeah, and I, almost I, as good as when he meets up at the saloon with with, with Harrison and and tells him that he and yeah. their confrontation is absolutely fantastic as well. But that that scene of him, you know, uh, howdy, you know, just trying yep. to be this other person. It's it's wonderful and. Uh, Deborah, I can't remember her last name, Val, Val, Valen, something from the Warriors and from, uh, from, um, that Ted Knight TV show and stuff. She, I can't remember her whole name, but it, she's, a, she's a really good actor and she's the one who answers the door that he gives this performance for and she's great in it too because it's, you, a scene like that, can't, you, the whole beauty of the film is that you don't catch it winking unless it's okay for us all to be in on the joke. 
you know, when it something's important to these characters, it it's, plays it straight and it's just wonderful. So, mm-hmm. Frisco Kid, check it out. Frisco Kid, go see it. Go see, seek it out. I'm sure it's out there. If you don't, if um, you right. don't know, and you know, give me a ring. I got it. I'm always willing to watch <laughs> Frisco Kid. Uh, speaking of heart, um, yeah. this this next film is all about what the heart wants. Is it? <laughs> I, I don't know. Say that, so. that was, that, I was like, oh, what? Tra- how am I going to transition to this? Um, <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna. Uh, next up is um, Ozone from 1980. It is the movie that gave us Brooke Shields. Uh, and <laughs> well, um, well, not really. Well, couple couple of Brooke Shields movies on this list. Um, it, but it, go ahead. But this is, but this is the Blue Lagoon. Yeah, yeah. Which was a decent sized hit in the theater and it was certainly a big story because it was a famous book and how you were going to translate it to the screen is tough because like frisco kid it there's an innocence to this story of these two kids growing up on a deserted island together you know absent any sort of adult supervision or really any remnants mm-hmm. of society. You know, they've both been raised to be certain kinds of people, but it's Lord of the flies, except very conveniently. It's just too, it's a super attractive guy and girl and no third person to cause them really any drama beyond what they can cause themselves. Um, that really helps, you know, in no exit it's very deliberately three people or, or there's a great, there's a great scene in something where it's like, you know, women are weird. I mean, if with just two of us, it's okay. But if you add a third, it's two of them to always start scheming against the other or whatever, yep. you know, yep. the beauty of this story, other than some, some very useless supervision from one of the, from the captain of the ship that has run ashore on this Pacific Island, who's an alcoholic and who quickly di- dies and leaves the picture. Spoiler alert, I guess for blue. Lagoon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just these two kids. And that's the idea behind the book. It was directed by Randall Kleiser, most famous for directing Grease. But he's mostly a family film type of directing guy. And and this is sort of a family film, even though it's got a lot of salacious stuff in it. Underage nudity. It's coming of age, you know. The female character has her first period. And they start out really as kids. But by the end of the movie, they're very much a couple and a team. Um, so when I talk about Blue Lagoon being on HBO, I talk about it that way because this was not the kind of movie, I don't know, Joel's parents brought them to see a bunch of twisted stuff. But my folks in a million years would never, ever dream of bringing us to Blue Lagoon, you know, at the drive-in and just telling us to fall asleep in the backseat. That was never yeah. going to happen. Yeah. We, we, my, me and my brothers were not even capable of pretending to be asleep, to be honest. <laughs> uh, maybe one at a time, but not when put yeah. together in a backseat. There's no chance of that. Yeah. So, uh, so well, we saw this, our generation saw this when it was on cable because here it is three o'clock in the afternoon and they're playing, yeah. they're playing Blue Lagoon and Blue Lagoon is at its heart. It's an adventure story. It's Robinson Crusoe. The fact that it's two teenagers um, is when you're a kid, it's kind of, you kind of get the meaning of it, but it's so, almost beside the point. This is a, this is a trapped on a, on a, you know, a desert Island film and that's the appeal of it i think when you're younger um brooke shields i can't remember how old she was 15 or 16 or something 
William Cott, the guy, he was quite a bit. He's like in his early twenties. Uh, you mean no, uh, Christopher Atkins? Oh, Chris Atkins. He was. He yeah. wasn't then. He was a little younger. Sorry, yeah. William Cott's hair. I do believe makes an appearance in it, though. <laughs> I get them a little mixed up because of the hair. Both sure. have these weird blonde late seventies sort of permed hairs. Yes. Uh, so yeah, but I right Christopher Atkins. He was a little older. Maybe not early 20s, but either way, it was yeah, a big deal. It, it was a big babysitting job for all the, you know, first assistant directors and PAs working on the film was to satisfy Brooke's mom that she wasn't being exploited. And, you know, in that way, it was great. Brooke Shields was this, this, I, I mean, this is her first movie, but she was a big time, like world famous supermodel already. Model at this, yeah. And was a story for that reason so uh but she was a pretty i have to say you know and you can read she's got autobiography and stuff but she was a pretty well protected kid in a way that some certainly weren't who were celebrities you know at such an early age so i, I always i always feel okay about watching this movie for that reason uh, the two of them have real chemistry and stuff. They get in these childish fights with each other. It, it's all shot beautifully in the same place they made uh, Black Stallion the year before, which is another really good one we watched on HBO a lot, but doesn't qualify because it was that was a monster hit film. Um, yeah. I like Blue Lagoon, and I think it sort of fits with this more. Like I said, more because HBO was your chance to watch this kind of thing, youngins. Yep. It, you, it was a PG-rated film, despite some of the nude stuff and stuff in the sexual, I don't want to say innuendo, but in, intense sort of sexual tension and sexual subtext at the yeah. heart of the story. I don't think you're telling a story about people this age, you know, unless you're, it really is about that to some degree. And right. It's not a good film, but it's it's much better than it's sort of salacious, cheesy, when you hear the name... You think of something. Yeah, it's become it's become a sort of a punchline in in popular culture. Right. Uh, but no, you're the star of the Blue Lagoon, and I'm the blue haired goon. <laughs> blue haired goon. Who blue. writes this crap? There's your Simpsons uh, reference for the name. Yep. Shields was 14, but all the nude scenes were performed by the 32 year old stunt double Kathy Trout. Yeah. Um. And uh, uh, Atkins was 18, so he did all of his own stuff. Um, how different would this movie have been had John Belushi played the Christopher Atkins role? Um, I don't know. Really super different. What? Who's asking that question? <laughs> no, apparently that he was up for consideration for the role. But I suppose at this funny. time he was opening films. He was up consideration for everything. Yeah, probably. But, uh, uh, that, that just jumped out at me as what? Hmm. No, uh, no, you need like the, you, the part of the whole thing about this movie is that there are, that they are gorgeous. They're gorgeous people. Yeah. Um, they are. Yeah. This is a, it's a garden um, of Eden story. Truly, truly. And they are, whether they do their own nude scenes or not, they're, they're 92% naked the entire time. Yeah. And that, you, that's unmistakable. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting movie, but it's really kind of a neat movie that I think, you know, deserves it deserves to not. I mean, at this point, it is what it is, but it deserves to be more than a punchline. It, it deserves to be judged on its own merits if you've never seen it. And 
And it certainly was a, a, a early pay cable staple, no question. Yeah. Because oh, it was absolutely. not a show that you could ease. It was not, although I, I'm sure it had a network TV premiere, it was not a movie you could easily play on network TV. Right. Yeah. It was, without, it's hard. Without you, you couldn't really cut around it. it yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because this was before the age of like, well, we could just go in and digitally blur bits and stuff. Yeah. Um, although yeah. they blurred some things but yeah no you're right yeah it would more be, it more would to the point the it's it's the letter writing campaigns and the complaints and stuff that you'd have got for playing such a thing yep blurred or not it, it and I blur out all the nipples you want it's still a thing still is what it is it's still about that kind of stuff so mm-hmm. you know there you go uh all right next up is um the uh i mean this one's an interesting movie because you know of the uh sony and marvel uh battle for superheroes and stuff um but back in 81 there was an early version of venom that no i'm kidding this is a very different film um how dare you bring your marvel fandom into this episode i will never (laughs) forgive you for that no 1981's uh venom is a british horror film uh that just has um Think of a bonkers 70s, early 80s era actor that's just like kind of gonzo. And as we were saying before we started recording, um, problematic <laughs> actor. Um, They're in this film. <laughs> it's it's really just a crime movie. It's a kidnapping movie. So it, it has a horror movie poster. Yeah. So it's often considered a horror movie, but you don't want to... Hor- hey, horror buffs, this isn't for you. Although you may yeah. enjoy it. Uh, there's no real horror. There's, there's a, it's, it's the house that the, the, the home invasion takes place in has a, a poisonous snake in it that gets loose in the house. And that's a big, it adds a lot of tension to these scenes when that snake shows up to like, all of a sudden it's about that thing. Um, and that's of course where the title comes from, but it's really, uh, uh, it's like a heist movie. It's a very complicated crime, heist, kidnapping, whatever story. I won't get into the details of the crime because it's just... Do you yeah. have a synopsis there where you can at least read uh, us that? I do, but I also want to give you the tagline that's on the poster. Oh, yeah. Go for it. It's a good one. The mystery of the birds. The danger of Psycho. The evil of the omen. The terror of Jaws. Yeah. And now the ultimate in suspense. Yeah. That's good. Nothing, like, nothing like wow. naming four vastly better movies right <laughs> on your poster. Uh, <laughs> all right. So uh, just, just to mention, you know, I, I, we talked about some of the actors that were here. Klaus Kinski is in it. Nicole Williamson, uh, Oliver Reed. Oh, <laughs> it's just bon- Oliver um, Reed's the head of the family. Nicole Williamson is the uh, detective inspector on the case. Uh, they're all well cast in these roles. Kinski's the main bad guy. Klaus yep. Kinski very famously turned down the role of Tote in Raiders of the Lost Ark to do this movie because this movie was shooting in London and he didn't want to travel to some faraway land to have to make a movie. Yep. They offered him the same amount of money. So, hey, Venom, here I come. Of course, that's kismet and that's good news. It's good news for Ronald Lacey, who's one of the all-time, like, cool dudes in in british cinema got that role instead and we're and he's so good in it that it's kind of like 
I get what Spielberg's saying, Kinski. I mean, that's number one on your list. I, under, I even understand why. But I think you get a madman when you hire him, whereas when you hire yeah. Lacey, you get a performance. And I think Raiders is better off for having the performance, in my opinion. Whereas yeah. Venom, probably better mm. to have the crazy. You got all these guys drinking like nuts on the, you know, <laughs> in between shots. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, it was a, an incredibly dramatic. Uh, shoot in that way. Um, let me give you the, the let me give you the storyline, yeah, the, sure. the, the quick plot synopsis. International terrorists attempt to kidnap a wealthy couple's child. Their plan becomes unstuck when a deadly black mamba, sent by mistake instead of a harmless snake, escapes, and the terrorists and several hostages are trapped in the boy's London home. A tense evening is had by all as the snake creeps around the house, picking off the various characters one by one. Ooh, that's a terrible synopsis. Yeah, it's not great. It should have stopped about halfway through. Uh, otherwise, it, it explains why the snake is there in a very clever way, which is good. It's it, Venom's not a good movie at all. It's a really fun, bad movie from that era. And and in that way, I really, really like it. You know, Oliver Reed is, is only as good as the material he's in, but he's never boring. And neither is Nicole Williamson and neither is Kinski. Who's the woman in it? kind of famous tall blonde lady i can't remember yes. her name oh, susan gosh. something sorry. maybe i was just in the i was just looking up another little yeah that synopsis took here. up the whole page there that you just read uh sarah miles really or are you thinking of a cornelia sharp no or so susan george susan, susan george. george sorry they had the damn so sophia miles is in it order. i didn't know that who's she playing it she plays Dr. Marion Stowe. Oh, okay. She, she's okay. Uh, a famous actor in a tiny part. That's kind of an important scene. Okay, I, I, that makes more sense. Wow, Sarah Miles, though that's awesome. Um, Susan George is who I'm thinking of. Yeah. Susan, Susan George is featured in it in a big way, and all the gentlemen of the era were really super into her. Um, it's fun. It's really bad, but fun. If you're into that kind of film and you missed this. Uh, but it isn't a horror movie. It just isn't. That, that snake is not Jaws. It just isn't. That is not. It, it. There are entire swaths of the film where you're not thinking about the snake at all. So it, it's just not a snake horror film. No. Um, if you want a snake horror film from a similar era, we recommend... S or to you Europeans out there, Snake, <laughs> which we've talked about on a previous yes. episode. Oh, that was a long time ago we talked about that one. It was, but, uh, but yeah, it's a similar kind of film. Although yeah, old, too old to make the new release wall at the HBO archives. So it was too <laughs> sure. old, 70, 75 and very 70s-ish. This Venom was 80, and it feels like a 1964 film, honestly. But it 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 still it it, it qualified, and it's pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, all right. Next up is uh, a, a movie I will freely admit I have not seen. Uh, 1981's Eye of the Needle with uh, Donald Sutherland. Ken Follett's Eye of the Needle. So yeah. it's it's based on a rather uh, for Ken Follett, who writes books that are as big as the, you know, King James Bible. It's a very small sort of lean and mean thriller story for him. During World War II, this cat played by Donald Sutherland, the Needle is his code name. He's a yeah. spy for Germany and England. And he makes his way due to several misadventures that we won't really go into. 
uh, to this to this small island and to this house where uh, Kate Nelligan is taking care of her husband, who or husband or father or something. Husband. husband, husband, who's in a wheelchair and it was injured during the war. I want to say, so they're having a. So it's very Hitchcockian setup, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, another kind of home invasion movie. Eye of the Needle was shot by Richard Marquand, who went on to direct probably most famously Return of the Jedi. Jedi. And this was the film, although he was not the first choice for Return of the Jedi. We've talked about that a few times. But this was the film where they looked at it and said, oh, this this guy's really good. Is he in the union? No? Cool. Hire him. You know. <laughs> um <laughs> Because <laughs> Return of the Jedi needed a non-director's uh, guild person to direct it. Or Steven Spielberg would have directed it. Um, because of George Lucas's battle with the union over having to have a, a director credited before the title of his films. That's all it was, but that's all it took. And it's been, wow. a, it's been a battle between them ever since. He resigned in protest. And for these, this they later laid off of this, you know, but for these big self-produced films, they wouldn't let him, you know, or I would, wouldn't let him isn't the right term, strongly discourage their members from working with him on these films. Mm. Uh, Irvin Kirshner was at the center of that fight. He actually got to make the film, but Mark Wand wasn't, he was a British director and and was not in the uh, hollywood director's guild so he was able to do the film that's the big yep. long con convoluted story but this film's got some really arresting shots in it it takes place all during the rain and it's just very moody and intense it's it's let down by when you know the whole setup is so genius and wonderful and intriguing that when they actually get to the house and it's just a old drunk invalid fighting with his wife and this evil Nazi double agent trying to seduce her. And, and Kate Nelligan's great in it. She's trying to find her way through all this conspiracy stuff. Um, it's an interesting film in that way. It's it, like I say that it, the end doesn't really live up to the beginning, but the beginning's so cool. There's this, this shot. It's really like Lynchian almost of, of him escaping the city and he's kind of going under this rail bridge and sneaking around. And his whole escape is this sort of wordless thing that just feels unmistakably English and noirish and really moody and cool. And Donald Sutherland is really having a fun time during this era, underplaying this guy, this soft spoken man, a few words, spy character who has sort of a, evil but still sort of survivalist core to him it's not a bad movie it's fun mm -hmm. and it i remember seeing it on it, pay cable it wasn't a huge hit when it came out oh, it was an okay hit it's a very right. adult movie so it's legend you know the family movies of the era even the ones that are bad or the genre movies like those sort of have take on a life of their own and their legend endures in a weird way you know, Logan's Run, yeah. or if we're talking 1980, Flash Gordon, you know, it's not like any yeah. of these were good, but they, they, they carried into the future because of their genre trappings. I have the, I have the needle is just a, it's just a novel adaptation, you know, like Blue Lagoon that, you know, it, it, that doesn't even have the benefit of having a punchline like reputation. <laughs> so <laughs> right. I, I put it on the yeah. list. It's better it, than that. It sounds Venom. cool. Yeah, but it, it sounds it's cool. Maybe a little more boring than Venom, too hard to okay. say. Okay. 
um all right well next up uh another uh another film based on uh pretty you know on a on a famous author's book we, uh, we're gonna go to the world of john steinbeck uh and we're gonna do cannery row yeah this is great yeah. this is actually yeah. based on two john steinbeck stories that they've combined yep. into one movie do you have cannery the names row of the stories there yeah, Cannery Row and Sweet Thursday. Sweet Thursday. Sweet Thursday is one of the funnest short stories that you'll ever read. And the 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 two don't sit super well together, but this film has a lot going for it. One, mm-hmm. they the from a scenic design standpoint, it's a little stagey, but if you can get over that, they rebuilt this wharf town. Yeah from scratch basically they just built the whole thing and the sets and the world of the story take on a a storybook quality to them because it it doesn't feel like a real place it feels like a staged place yeah but it really does transport you to another world in a way that this film if they would just kind of made it straight up or modernized it which would have been tragic because it's very much a depression era film um yeah it doesn't and i really find that stuff neat that and uh uh nick nolte at his roguishly best looking although he mentioned that this was the first movie where they made him wear a girdle which he named the richard dreyfus special (laughs) (laughs) i don't know why that's funny to me it's funny that he had to wear it was happy to talk about it in interviews and then took another very famously insecure actor and named it after him (laughs) yep presumably because dreyfus during the era was a very famous girdle wearing actor Hey, mm-hmm. I, there's no girdle big enough for me to star in a Hollywood film, so I'm not ripping <laughs> on either of those guys. The, uh, but it's it's funny. It's he's playing this leading man, and they wanted it to be all this have all this romantic energy to it, and it doesn't quite manage that. Uh, Nolte and Deborah Winger have unmistakable chemistry together, but it's comedic chemistry like it's hard to explain what it is yeah they're they're supposed to be these you know these lovers who come together in this sort of misfit time and 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 that all happens as you'd expect but it just it's something weird deborah winger's weird she's one of the weirder kind of tougher chicks in all the hollywood history and she's certainly one of the best actors of her generation without question um but she's weird and prickly and her whatever her outlook on life is comes through the performance largely in these films. It's one of the reasons she's really fascinating to watch in movies because her it, it, her character's attitude towards John Travolta and Urban Cowboy or Richard Gere, an officer and a gentleman, like that's certainly part of it. She brings the performance, but her attitude, Deborah Winger's attitude towards John Travolta, Deborah Winger's attitude towards Richard Gere are in the film. They're very much a, yeah. a living part of the movie. <laughs> uh, same with terms of endearment at all. Yeah. It, it's awesome. I mean, I really do think that's awesome. She's a person who brings a lot of herself to every role. Um, got her in trouble eventually, as you would think she was sort of a difficult I don't want to say she was too difficult to work with because if you read back on what people found objectionable, it's all kind of BS. It's all kind of mm-hmm. if she were Harrison Ford, nobody would have a problem with any of it. But um, sidebar: there's a great uh, a, a great documentary of uh, what is it called? Is it called Searching for Deborah Winger? Uh, oh yeah. Or what happened to Deborah Winger? Uh, yeah, it's just kind of about 
that very thing. Uh, you know how she didn't work for many years in Hollywood because she had, she worked know, the whole in, time in and part. is still working now, but she was the it girl for this yeah. six or seven and, year and period was, there. And, and, it, and, and it was, and, and one of the things I talk about in there is, yeah, it's like anything that it, anything that she's accused of, if it were done by a guy, it would have never, it would have never been nothing even raised an eyebrow. Yeah. She very famously so. dropped out of a league of their own because they, uh, when Madonna was cast. <laughs> yeah. Cause she just um, is it, like, Oh, you're making a Madonna movie. Well, good luck. I mean, that yeah. was, she had a sort of rigid way of looking at things and, a like, uh, art artistic sort of integrity that she was always hanging on to. Even, even in a film like we all love league of their own, but that film doesn't require her to be like that. And it really doesn't. And as good as Gina Davis is in it, though, it's a shame because she, Deborah Winger would have been better. She's a better actor by a, by half. Back to Cannery yeah. Row. It's Cannery a lot Row. of will they or won't they. It's a bickery sort of old-fashioned relationship that they get into. It's got this multitudes of packed to the rafters of wacky, zany bartenders and street urchins and side characters and mother-in-laws <laughs> yep. and the whole works. And that Thursday story is really just about these old guys, which is this side story that really lives comfortably alongside this that is just pure crazy buster keaton like physical comedy uh with this great old denver pile styled old guy voiceover that sort of tells the story of these depression era adventures of these old winos yeah it's, john houston john houston did that is the guy who does that. the narration of course yeah. yeah just wonderful it's a wonderful really wonderful film it's goofy and stagey and strange and it's not like anything really you've seen the movie it compares closest to is probably popeye from the same year that's Altman's. that's exactly yeah that, that when you talked about the doesn't set, have songs in it but it it has that sort of weird out of this worldness to it that's yeah i think and, is kind of wonderful the world that is created by building these crazy sets yeah it, it, I mean that very it much starts with that. The truly. whole, yeah, yeah. This this um, this fake Main Street and these just glorious sort of old Hollywood designs mm -hmm. and things. It's, it's and this matte photography and everything. It's really really neat in that way. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, up next, I don't think it's intentional, Joel. I I I think they wanted it to feel like a real place and they failed. But that. But that the way it looks and the yeah. way it is is such a character in the thing that it really adds to it. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I don't think it was. I don't. I, yeah, I certainly don't think that they, you know, in, in that they set out saying we're going to create this world and these are going to be the crazy inhabitants of the world. No, I think it was like I think in order to tell this story, we need you know this is what the set has to look like yeah. in order to make you know to probably very practical thinking went behind what it looks like. Uh, and also that's also, it, you know, there was still, you know, it, we're, we're coming out of the seventies uh, and, and movie making in the seventies where everything started to get much more realistic, much more thing. And then there was, and then there was a move, you know, sort of a movement, not a movement, but, you know, sort of a, an anti seventies uh, type of, you know, yeah. we wanted that back, more, back a, a lean that, more back toward romantic good, escapism yeah. and mm -hmm. good yeah. versus evil stories. Definitely. And this is certainly part of that. Yeah, it's an adult movie, um, but it it's it's joyful. It really is neat. Even when I was a kid, I found Deborah Winger and Nick Nolte boring as hell. But when they're 
hunting frogs in the swamp and stuff. I mean, I was riveted. I was super into it. So yeah. it, it was a movie that, you know, even like whatever, 11 year old Ryan, like super dug. Um, yeah, I remember liking it too. And I, I, again, of so many of these movies, uh, well, almost all of these movies I have not seen in years, but they, so many of them made distinct impressions on me, yeah. uh, including this next film, um, which honest to God, I reread, I, I read the plot synopsis of the film to refresh my memory. And I'm like, I don't remember that. <laughs> what? I don't remember. Wait, I just remember horses. There was lots and lots of horses. <laughs> Got to go after a horse. Hey, look, there's horses coming. Oh my God. That guy died from a horse. Um, and, uh, and that is the man from snowy river. Yeah. The first uh, Australian Western that I remember. Um, yeah. of, which is sort of a Western subgenre, the down under Western. Um, this is written, uh, directed by George Miller, not that one, the other one, the no, other George Australian T. George Miller. Um, George, George, what Miller? He's got a George T. T. George T. Miller. Yeah. <laughs> um, George, the T stands for the George the Miller. Yeah. It's, uh, it's great. It's a neat, it's a, it's again, it's a family movie about a kid whose father, you know, he was raised on a ranch, but his father sort of lost the ranch. And so he's looking for work again at a tough time in history. Um, and he's got this natural thing with horses and it's certainly a, uh, I'd say it was a movie for horse lovers cause horses are really worshiped by the camera in it, but yeah. It has some really intense horse stunts at the end that might that might shake <laughs> a real animal lover up a little bit. I, I think they give us a the, you know these these uh, no animals were harmed thing in it, but it was it it has this it's like a forty degree incline that these horses have to go down at the end, and there's this sort of weird chase that's real. It's brilliant from an action movie standpoint, but it's really really intense, mm -hmm. and you really you really wonder how no animals could have been hurt doing it. Um, but the big thing, and Joel, I'm going to confess, the big thing it has is it has Kirk Douglas playing t twin brothers, two different characters in it. <laughs> and the first couple of times I saw this when I was a kid, I didn't know they were twins. I thought it was the same guy. And I was super confused. Because <laughs> one, <laughs> one of them is the mentor, you know, the... the um, Mr. Miyagi of this kid who's doing this horse business. And the yep. other one is this evil rancher who's taken over all these ranches and stuff. And it, so to not know they were different characters <laughs> when you're watching it <laughs> is really stupid. Like that's a stupid kid thing, but it's a different movie that way. Uh, yeah. The, <laughs> it's a, very it, different, it's a different movie. movie when you, when this is crazy guy has this weird split personality than when it's two different people. But you got to do, you know, it, part of it is the film yeah. doesn't do the work of a same guy playing twins. They are almost in no scenes together and they are very rarely ever shown in frame together. And of course, because that's hard to do, but you have to do it. You really have to set the movie that way and show us here they are. Here's yep. where they're different. They're on they screen together. Yep. See, they're not the same. In my defense... Man from Snowy River doesn't do that. It doesn't do the work of that. It has a scene like that, and it has the scenes cross-cut between them. They, they're in scenes together, but it it doesn't, probably because it was difficult to pull off, it doesn't do that. It doesn't nail that introductory <laughs> Hollywood star playing twins yeah. moment that it needs, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, you know, in fact, the characters are introduced 
vastly different points in the film, which also is not helpful. You 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 need to see them together. I, I think mm-hmm. that's really important. I don't think I'm out of line by saying that. No, I don't think so. Lots of horses, so. really lovely uh, folk sort of musical score. Lots of great uh, Australian outback locations. Two really cute kids that you just, you know, Romeo and Juliet style. Uh, one one from the other side of the tracks, and the other ones is born to be a princess or whatever, and married mm-hmm. to the richest guy in Melbourne. And it's it it's lovely. It's really fun, lovely like adventure story, family drama. I dig it, and I yeah. It was it's it's a big widescreen movie, so these days you don't want to watch it on HBO. You want to, you know, watch it on demand, so you can get that out of it. But I watched it for the first time on HBO. I really liked it. So yeah, yeah. Um, okay, next up, um, very different film uh, than uh, the Man from Snowy River. That's what's uh, fun about this show. It's a lot of yeah. No, and, I love it. This um, oh, boy, this is another movie. Um, I remember this because uh, I I have memories of this one because uh for some reason i just remember how foul-mouthed the kids were in it and yeah, hearing it's not, some not bad swears. news bears but there's one kid in particular who it, that's yeah. his stick and that is uh kenny rogers is brewster baker in six pack six pack i just watched six pack on uh, uh wednesday night get out really yeah i, I watched six pack and another movie that's coming up on this list the two movies that they they came out around Labor Day and uh, my birthday party in 1982 when I turned 10 and 1983 when I turned 11. I went to see these two films with a group of friends of mine because even back then, Labor Day was not when you put out your best films. It was an outdoor yeah, yeah. picnic holiday and it just people didn't go to the movies unless it rained all the way across the country. Then you might have found yourself with a, a hit. Six Pack was a minor hit for a minor studio film starring a very mm-hmm. uh, pretty charismatic and yet not very skilled leading man in Kenny Rogers. Kenny had done the Gambler film on TV, which is a massive hit film. Um, he was about to do a bunch of Gambler sequels plus uh, Coward of the County, which was another okay. massive mm-hmm. hit television film. But, you know, films based on the storytelling in his songs. This was just a movie they, they I don't know, they didn't wrote it with him in mind, but it became a Kenny Rogers starring vehicle, and he's great in it. He plays a small-time uh, dirt racetrack driver who mm-hmm. by chance stumbles across a bunch of orphaned kids who are stripping vehicles of their parts and engines and things uh, for a local evil sheriff played by the great Barry Corbin. If you need an evil sheriff. I mean, there's got a lot of options, but he's the sort of Jackie Gleason of this film, and he's very entertaining. Um, yeah. And the kids are fun. Anthony Michael Hall and Diane Lane. Diane Lane especially. Diane Lane and, and, and Kenny Rogers. Diane Lane is acting circles around Kenny Rogers, which is, first of all, that's <laughs> that's pretty fun to watch. And because yeah. she's, she's been in more movies than him, even at this point, even when she's 15 or whatever old she is, 16, <laughs> it just knows what she's doing. And, uh, and even Erin uh, Gray, who's really cute in it and great, but she's, Diane Lane's better actor than her too. <laughs> Diane Lane's better yep. than the guy who plays Turk, the bad guy. He's also pretty fun in it. Only slightly so. But in their scene yep. together, it, it's that's fun. Diane Lane's awesome. 
She yeah. She really good. is. She could carry a movie all on her own, and she's this this she's this movie's secret weapon, in my opinion. Um, but it's great. They hook up. You know, they first they strip his car, then he chases him down. Uh, then they're all like, uh, I was telling my friend Jenny, who I watched this with, and she'd never seen it. Sort of mean to make her watch my old birthday movies one night, but I just had a hankering to do it, and I knew this show was coming up, and I thought, hey, well, let's do this. And it was fun. It was very fun, but very nostalgic night at the movies. Um, but there's uh, in during, and sorry, there's a bit of a spoiler, but I don't think much of one. It's just a minor detail for his Dark Materials series. But there's this great in the season two of that show or book two, which if you're a reader or a watcher. Um, there's this great weird world that they travel to where all the adults are gone and they've left these weird orphan kids behind. And, yeah. um, and this movie has an aspect of that, which is why I'm bringing this up. It's great. They, and there's this scene where, and the, there's all this conflict. There's all this Lord of the Flies, like conflict between these kids. There's this scene where this physicist, this adult, it's what's important, not that she's a physicist, but she sort of shows up and she's looking for our heroes who've moved on at this point. But she finds mm-hmm. these little feral ch- children, uh, or the best of which is played by Bella Ramsey, who is so brilliant in Game of Thrones. And she's, she's like have you seen them or whatever? And they're like, Oh yeah, we saw them. We were just here with them and tried to kill them. And then the look on the, <laughs> the actor's a really great British lady. I won't say her name or ruin the rest of this, but the look on her face is one of horror. She's from our world, but she didn't want to hear that. And, and Bella's reaction is to her, her look of horror is, was that wrong? <laughs> <laughs> yep. And she says, yes. <laughs> it doesn't hesitate. Yep. Anyway, part of the side story, she sort of gets these kids where they need to go. And when they're parting ways, uh, she again, she says, um, would you stay with us and, like, tell us what to do? <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's great. Uh, kids who yeah. had no adult supervision, like, left to their own devices. There's all – Blue Lagoon's one of them. There's all these stories where how that can yeah. go horribly wrong through no fault of its own. We're uh, a long – rearing species of our children and when you take that out of the equation things go odd and that they've sort of gone odd for these group of kids who've fallen in with criminals and stuff and they're well-meaning a couple of them are older and old enough to know you know this ain't right but it's fun watching them find a guardian who sort of needs them and by the end spoiler alert for six pack they all become through all this you know, racing hijinks and the kids become his pit crew. There's six of them. They're very famously nicknamed mm-hmm. the six pack. Um, you know, you've got the evil sheriff who's on the hunt, like all these Southern road movies of the era. You got some guy chasing you down from behind and you've got a, another sort of evil rival race car driver who's really fun and chewing scenery. And it, it's, it's a stupid movie. It's the home of the great film or the great song, the pop song of Kenny's, Love Will Turn You Around, which is yep. one of my favorite songs of his, and wonderfully ties into the sort of climax of the film. It's neat. It's a fun film that if you've never seen it, it's worth a try. It really will it oh, really yeah. will be a trip back to your single digits, you know, early tweens or whatever era in your life. It feels like that when you're watching it. And if you have seen it, it's worth revisiting because it's it's it is as about as good as you remember. And some of these are not. 
<laughs> there just yeah. aren't. And this one kind of is, so I dig it. Uh, speaking of great movies that... Donald uh, Petrie, just, we'll just, because we never talk about him, and we won't, but he directed it. He's a decent director. That's true, yeah. Charles yep. Fox did the music for it. It's a lot of banjo, Dukes of Hazard style chase music and stuff, but still pretty yep. fun. It's very Dukes of Hazardy type story. That's about the level of storytelling we're talking about. So, yes, yes, it very much is. Yeah. Um, the next movie is one of my all-time favorites. I have brought it. I think I brought it up on this uh, on our show before at least once. Um, and it is uh, 1983's Max Dugan Returns. Yeah, this is a movie. This is a movie I would. I you know like if I came across HBO and this was on, it's like nope, clear the room. I'm watching Max Dugan Returns. Here we go. Herbert Ross um, directing Neil Simon. Neil Simon starring yeah. Barbara. Or Mar no, Marsha Mason. Marsha Mason. Yeah. For like the who, fourth uh, time, fourth of five mm -hmm. times or something. Um, of course, the 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 great thing about this movie, it has a couple of great things. It's got it got Jason Robards actually having fun in a movie. Not that that isn't what we ask of him, but boy is it fun when you yeah. see it. It's not usually he's a pretty self serious guy and that's what he's asked to do. Yeah. He's having a really good time at it and and uh, all respect to Marsha Mason, who's awesome and Goodbye Girl and some of the earlier Neil Simon stuff. It's Matthew Broderick's movie, and he's he's early role, his, early his cinema first, role for film, him. And he's his film debut, yeah, his film debut, and he is, yeah, he's really really good in it. Yeah. Donald Sutherland as sort of the cop love interest of Marsha Mason, yet also antagonist because he's uh, because he knows that because Max. Up. Max Dugan is a criminal and she's yep. dating a police officer. Um, yeah, it's fun. It, uh, it's really overwritten. Even for Neil Simon, it's really zap a dap dap. You know, the the Marcia yeah. and, and Donald have these debates about literature. And I mean, it's, you know, that's none of that rings true. Like at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, the school bullies are ridiculous. The everybody's super articulate. But it's joyful. It, the, it, the joy is in the writing and that that energy. No better guy on earth. And it, in a way, this could be on a Neil Simon episode. It could. It certainly would be on a Herbert Ross episode. But to me, this is the movie. This is the the after school special that was actually a movie of that era more than most any of the rest of these. I, to me, this was my, I saw it on HBO and I saw it again and I saw it again and I saw it again, just like you. Yeah, me too. Yep. It's so fun. It's so great. It's not war games or anything, but Broderick's yep. fantastic in it. And it, it, so if somehow you missed it, maybe you didn't, but it wasn't some big hit. And as I said, it's legend right. because it doesn't have a, a supercomputer in it that starts World War Three. You know, it's not a high concept film. It's a it's a situation comedy about a family, one of whom is kind of on the run from some con man jobs or whatever. But they're just it's a it's a family comedy, and in that way, it it doesn't mm -hmm. you know it does it just it's legend. It's, is only within the hearts of those of us who saw it so many times. Yeah. It didn't it's, really extend. It, you know, well, and it's, you know, and it's wish fulfillment in the sense of, you know, either a young teenager and all of a sudden you wake up and suddenly all of these amazing top of the line things <laughs> yeah. are happening and you're, and you're, your your right. mom is going, no, we can't have this. We got to give it back. And you're like, what, 
what? No, I get, oh my God, we got a, I got the hitting coach from the Chicago White Sox to come help me. <laughs> come help me with uh, my little league team. Come help me with my little league team. Yeah. And, and like, no, we can't. Do, uh, oh, it's everything. Oh God, I love this movie so it's much. It's really, really neat. It's really neat. It's really, really neat. It's a story about, um, you know, looking for belonging, but, but, yep. but, but having it come in the strangest places. It's a film mm-hmm. about redemption to a small degree and about forgiveness. It's yep. very thematically rich for something that's as cheesy and yep. hoppity as yeah, it is. Yeah, watching it again, watching it again as an adult, it, you know, obviously the the whole uh, father daughter relationship, the, yep. the parental, the complex parental relationship, yeah. uh, really comes to the forefront. And you know, and and again, you, like you said, it is overwritten. I would agree with that. But Marsha well, Mason's really, really good. I mean, it just and it, it like. Things that could be said in two sentences are said in five. Right, right. right. Um, and, I, I didn't and, really know, mean it but, like that. I just mean the the dialogue is so stylized, and yeah. it, it, like an Aaron Sorkin script is, or like uh, a Gilmore Girls episode is. That's what I'm talking about when I say overwritten. It's every character is speaking with the author's voice in a very distinct way, and so it in a way it's a world from their mind and their heart. In, in this case, mm-hmm. Neil Simon. And in in the hands of somebody less depth or less experienced with that might be trouble. You know what I mean? In the hands of Ross, it's fantastic. In the hands of a guy like Rob Reiner, who I'm always ripping on, you're you're golden because he's going to get to the heart of the thing. And you can count on him to do that. And everything else is just fun. Uh, But not everybody can do that. It's, it's, it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's, it's why Sorkin directs his own stuff now and why, I forget her name, but why Gilmore Girls Lady directs her own stuff now, runs her own show, because not everybody gets it, you know, mm-hmm. when you're that mm-hmm. unique. And I I think Neil Simon, you know, he's a populist writer, but I really do think he has a unique voice. Right. Um, okay, I could talk about this all day, but... Um, yeah, let's maybe it'll come up the- again. Maybe because we've only touched on it, we'll get to... Yeah. Um, next up <laughs> is a movie that is also... Uh, near and dear to my heart um, for, different as, reasons. for very different reasons. This is, a, <laughs> you know, when uh, growing up, my brother, my older brother and I uh, were oil and water. We did not get along. We fought all the time. Very different interests. But uh, one place where we absolutely could agree <laughs> is the movie Strange Brew. Yeah, which um, is a movie about it, brotherhood, really. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. Strange Brew was my turning eleven birthday movie. <laughs> uh, uh, I, yeah. I had the I had the take off to the Great White North single at home, and that got me to buy the album, which I put on a tape and just played constantly. The Great White North album. I had never seen an episode of SCTV, which is where the characters of Bob and Doug McKenzie were originated. Yep. But I knew enough about them from those things, and they made me giggle and they made me laugh. Their that version, uh, their take off to the Great White North, which was a big top forty hit. You don't hear much anymore, but but their version of uh, Twelve Days of Christmas is the best version of Twelve Days of Christmas ever. Correct. And that Correct. still makes the rounds every holiday season on the radio, as far as I can tell. As well, it should because it's the worst. I mean, there have been some yeah. postmodern Christmas songs that are worse, but. Of the classic Christmas songs from the 50s that all the baby boomers love, 12 Days of Christmas is the worst, bar none. You can say, oh, it's this, it's that, but no. It's 12 Days of Christmas goes on forever. As soon as it starts, you're like, oh, we got to sit through all this. It just makes you moan. It's There's a hole in my bucket. 
It's <laughs> the old lady who swallowed a spider. It just goes on and on and on and on and is terrible. And, of course, the brilliance of Bog and Doug McKenzie, the guys who, quote, talk over songs and wreck them, is that they just only make it to day six before the whole thing falls apart into a yeah, giant... Yeah, it falls apart, and they're like, where are we? And then suddenly the chorus just goes, 12? <laughs> hey, we made it to day 12! It's, it's genius. It no, makes fun are, of that song two, in a great way and yeah, allows their personalities to come through. There are two acceptable versions of the 12 Days of Christmas. Ah. Uh, the Bob and Doug McKenzie version and mm-hmm. the Muppets with John Denver. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, those are the two because the it, because and, again, and in the just, opposite order, just, I would say. Uh sure, yeah. Because and, the Bob and, and Doug McKenzie one only works if you have a working knowledge of what the song actually correct. is supposed to be. Uh, and 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 the and and the Muppets version is saved by Piggy. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly, just out of nowhere, just going bam, bam, bam. It's <laughs> yeah, you know, Piggy saves that song. Well, it's, um, John Denver and the Muppets are, if you can experience one anyway, that's a good way to yep. do it. Anyway. Anyway, Rick Moranis uh, like, and Dave Thomas for SCTV, Second City Television, created these Canadian characters. They're both Canadians. Um, these low, you know, hockey-watching, beer-guzzling, cigarette-smoking losers, basically. the Basically, yep. the Wayne's world owes a lot to these guys because that's really what it is. It's like a cable access TV show by a couple of schlubs who are completely incompetent at communicating or accomplishing anything. And somehow they got the rights to do this movie before, you know, both Rick and Dave went on to much more notable things than these characters, but man, they're fun in it. This movie's ridiculous. It it follows bonkers. It follows the story of Hamlet. Hamlet. Yep. It's it, it, uh, the, it it's just Hamlet a story. Is a wom- <laughs> yeah, Hamlet is a Hamlet is a woman named Pam, right? Um, and, and Bob and Doug are Rosencrantz and Guildenstern with um, hearts of gold and no ulterior mo- motives whatsoever, except to get free beer. And yeah. uh, and of course, yeah, it's that's... also Hamlet where the ghost of Pam's dead father actually saves the day, which is weird. So yep. it's it's got a it's got a possessed arcade game. Oh, it's got all game. these weird. Oh early 80s things in it it's got a flying got dog Max, at the end yeah the flying dog who is painted like a skunk <laughs> it's not because you know why not whose name is hosehead well um, hosehead he, is appropriate but yeah the fact that they paint him like a skunk is really funny and the pa- fact that that then becomes a really important plot point later is really unexpected uh, you have yeah you have uh but it's Rick drinking an entire and it gets zanier yeah. and crazier as it goes. Max von Sydow is great Cito. in it. Max von Sydow as our as our villainous brewmaster playing it. He, kn- <laughs> he knows totally what oh, movie he's so in, but good. he plays it absolutely straight. Uh-huh. Paul Dooley, on the other hand, is <laughs> yeah. overacting like mad in a delightful way. And um, our Ophelia is played by our buddy Angus McGinnis, who we were just talking about a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago. As uh, Rosie, the hockey player who had a mental breakdown and is now in an insane asylum and part of some evil experiments to have to uh, take over the world. It's all in this yep. movie. The movie can't be With quantified by what it is or what happens. It's it's really, really fun. And it, it, it worked. And you know it is because all everybody our age, at least the guys... Oh, saw was, this, this on was... HBO and saw it again, saw it again and again, and just loved it. Loved the crazy humor in it. 
Uh, loved how as the final act is kicking in, it just got one more crazy, unbelievable visual sight gag after another. Um, it's very funny, but the thing that really drives it along is Rick and Dave have this brotherly thing to them. They're very competitive. Dave is constantly talking about how he's going to turn his brother in for all the stuff that he didn't even do. <laughs> There's this really funny scene yeah. where partway through it, they, they, they Scooby-Doo the mystery and it's, you guys go that way and you guys go that way. And Dave's like, <laughs> good, good riddance to you or whatever. He's like, yeah, you go your way. And a couple minutes later, they show Moranis and he's just crying. Cause they've never, <laughs> since they've never been apart. Since, yep. Since Bob came out of the womb, oh. they've never ever been apart, and you you feel that like these two are, you know, incomplete without each other. It's really really fun. It's really fun. Very oh. quotable. Very goofy. Super goofy, but smart in a way that it knows to, it it understands its Hamlet references. You know what I mean? Like it's that too. But I don't want yeah. to sell it as some smart comedy because whatever smarts are going on beneath the surface, it really is crazy and wacky more than anything. Yeah, it is. A great scene. Yeah. Oh, you know, they, it, it starts out with them on their show, the Great White North show, trying to show a movie that they made with their Super 8 camera. And it all, again, like everything, it falls apart. Nothing works. And everybody has to run out of the theater. And there's this great scene where they come up on the alley but this guy and his two kids and the guy's like, they saved up their money for months to see this movie. And their kids are just forlorn and crying like the worst thing in the world that happened. They went to see a bad movie. It's mm -hmm. that kind of world of the story where everything's heightened and crazy. And this actor is he's like, what do I tell him now? Huh? What do I tell him? <laughs> <laughs> and oh. Bob, you know, it's, oh, man, I'm really sorry. Yeah. He gives away his dad's <laughs> beer money. And that's like the inciting incident that makes this whole film happen. Mm -hmm. It's really, really entertaining. I mean, that's oh, not God. that's not an iconic moment from the film. But watching it again, I'm like, gee, that is funny. Because that's there's really no good. reason for that level of melodrama to be happening here. But that's the joy of it. It's oh. over the top. Anything for a laugh. No holds barred. Anything for a laugh. It's in this movie. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right, uh, let's move on and talk about the Osterman weekend. <laughs> um, not, Ugh. not, not a comedy. No. Um, well, I think is... it is a comedy actually. I, I think, I don't know how it ends up this way because it's a, it's a Robert Ledlam novel. That's a very serious novel about yeah. this guy who's blackmailed into inviting all of his friends to his house in this sort of big chill styled reunion or whatever but he's been told by the government that one of them is is a russian spy or a you know an eastern Bloc spy and he and the whole point of the weekend is to ferret out who that is it, that's an interesting idea but it 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 has all this farce it has this really wicked movie poster with uh, meg meg foster with like this one of those yeah hydraulic bows and arrow things like you know and the her eye just lit by a little pin spot and it looks like it's this gonna be this let's hunt the human like story but it isn't yeah it, it's it's a farce it really is a farce it's a weird we're all trapped in the weird house together and all these weird scenarios happen or whatever there's this scene where john hurt who's the government man who's sort of behind all this or at least behind this plan is 
is on a closed circuit television talking to our hero and telling him what to do. And then a bunch of people come into the room and he has to pretend he's a newscaster reading the news while they're there. <laughs> that's not a serious, that's, you know, it's Ludlum. That's not a born identity style scene. That is a goofy yeah. Agatha Christie style farcical thing. And the movie is full of it. One of the weirdest things about it is Craig T. Nelson's character. He plays the jock buddy, basically, which is he's super well cast at that. He goes more and more absolutely psychotic and insane as the movie goes on. This was directed uh, by a super stoned and super drunk Sam Peckinpah. It's off the hook crazy. It's just a crazy, weird movie. Mm -hmm. It has no heart. It is not enjoyable like Strange Brew is. <laughs> Yeah, but for the weird spy thrillers of its era, it's it it's one of a kind. It's a train wreck of a film, but there's nothing else like it. And it used to play constantly on HBO. Because I don't know why, because I guess because nobody saw it in the theaters. And who's the star of it? I'm talking around him. Him and Meg Foster are the couple at the center of the story. Uh, 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 uh Rutger Howard. Oh, yeah. So, you know, that has appeal, right? Rutger yeah. Hauer. They all signed up for it, and I don't think any of them could yeah, have known. I mean, it's it... it's Rutger Hauer, John Hurt, Craig T. Nelson, Dennis Hopper, Burt Lancaster. Right. Read um, the premise. You know, the premise sounds like it's straight up legit thriller. Um, Espionage well, me, thriller. Yeah. I mean, the 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 plot synopsis here yeah. is, is bonkers. It's long. Let me find a... No, then don't read it. I don't want a long yeah. one. I want two sentences. No, that, that's what... If you go to IMDb, they give you two yeah, sentences. Yeah, that's where I'm going. That's where I'm going. I, I, okay. I had that up just a second. I was looking at something else here. Uh, during the Cold War, a controversial television journalist is asked by the CIA to persuade certain acquaintances who are Soviet agents of the Omega Network to defect. Again, that sounds pretty. That sounds like a Ludlum novel. It it, it is. Uh, yep. In this adaptation of Robert Ludlum's novel, the host of an investigative news program has been convinced by the CIA that the friends and associates he's invited to weekend with him in the country are actually engaged in a nefarious conspiracy which threatens national security. And he's got to find out. It's a bonkers film. It's a bonkers yeah. film. It it's set up like a like a Ludlum novel, and I'm sure the novel is as good as any of his novels of the era. It, it what it is is a is a drunken drugged out Sam Peckinpah fever dream and because <laughs> it because it's that it's for you know for cinema fans mm -hmm. it's not to be missed even though it's for anyone who just likes a well told story it's probably not to be enjoyed either it's hard to explain but it's on the list right. it definitely fits this list and maybe it's the only place it fits <laughs> it's hard to say right um, all right, next up is uh, Brooke Shields is back. Yay! More Brooke Shields. This time, she was on a deserted island, a uh, tropical island. Now she's in the desert of Sahara. Sahara. I loved this yeah. film when I was a kid, when it would come on Showtime. I loved it. I thought it was so cool. It's this, It's again, it's a race car movie. It's an old yep. school, like when cars were new, race car movie. Um Brooke Shields plays the the daughter of a wealthy automotive engineer who dies, and she takes his place in this invitation to a cross country, cross the Sahara Desert, cross country automobile race, uh, run by a, a bunch of people in Africa, I assume. 
And she gets kidnapped and she falls in love with a, you know, an exiled Arab prince played by La French guy, Lambert Wilson. And uh, it's, it, it, it also has all this sort of, it's a mad, mad world, like those magnificent men and their flying machines, like hijinks with the other drivers and stuff. It's fun for old car nuts because there's all these cool old Packards and all these old dressed mm -hmm, up race mm -hmm. cars. Uh, however, on and it's and I thought it would be better on home video and in high definition because it's shot by Andrew V. McLaughlin, who's a pretty good Western war movie director. Along, not as good as Robert Aldrich, but along those same sort of lines. Directed a lot of Roger Moore films and things like that. Um, and it's a widescreen movie, and I thought, well, for a widescreen adventure, it should look great. But watching it again. I don't know. Is this the other one you watched the other night? It's not very good. No, Strange Brews, the other one we watched. Oh. The nice. two birthday movies. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. I yeah, said right. we were there. For years and years, I was the only person I knew, me and the friends I took out on my birthday party to see Strange Brew. Only people I knew who saw Strange Brew in the theater. It was like a badge of honor. We saw that in the theater. We saw that opening night yeah. in the theater. It was me, my seven friends, and two other guys. The theater was packed with people to see somebody, something. But it wasn't yeah. Strange Brew because the Strange Brew screening room was empty. But I just found out that Rob Dunkelberger saw it in the theater too. Our own Rob, super fan, super fan. So Rob, now yeah, I don't. I got yeah, I, I, I. He's the exception that proves not, the rule, I guess. I did not get a chance to see it in the theater. No, uh, nobody did, not, man. Nobody it's the did, ultimate yeah. HBO. Yeah, I saw it on HBO oh, Movie. It really is absolutely, it, absolutely. That, we yeah, yeah, that was that's where its reputation that. was earned. Yeah, and we had that. We taped it off of HBO so that we could watch it. You know, literally on demand. Wore out the tape. Yeah, wore wore out that tape. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so, so Sahara anyway, Sahara doesn't have a lot of nostalgia going for it. It's got a cool cast of interesting people. It is a cross country race movie, but it just it. I was I so share? bummed by how kind of bad, it, just kind of how flat and bad it was. You know, and, and not in a fun way. But it's still, me, I still really liked it when I was a kid on HBO, and that is where it lived. It's a, it's a canon film group film, so I should have known it was going to be bad. Let me uh, share the two of the uh, three taglines here that I really love. Okay. The hottest place, the hottest place on earth, is about to get hotter. Nice, I like that. Love that. This one is also. She challenged the desert. It's men their passions and ignited a bold adventure nice. that makes it so that's that's i'm like yeah well it's and it's got this great like temple of doom sort of raiders of the lost ark artwork and stuff i mean it yeah, it's selling it's, itself as this globe trotting adventure in the de in some exotic land mm -hmm. it's got a mm -hmm. woman in the lead who's not a bad actor necessarily she's not good in this um, but she does have a certain, I mean, she's, she's, the screen loves her either way. Yep. So it doesn't really yep. matter. Lambert Wilson actually is a good actor, but he's, he's just, he's just treading <laughs> water in it. I mean, it's just, yeah. the script is rock dumb. It was approved by Golan and Globus and Israel, and they didn't really get what it was. They, they, like with all their movies, they knew what kind of movie they wanted to make. They knew what kind of film they wanted to rip off, but they couldn't read something or even see dailies of something and really get what it was. So they're the weirdest guys to ever run a movie studio of their own because yep. this fundamentally don't understand basic storytelling rules. And as a result, even McLaughlin, even a screenwriter with some experience 
could put together these things that just don't work for whatever reason. This is this isn't much worse than Richard Chamberlain and Sharon Stone and you know King Solomon's Mines, or it's those along lines, the, yep. that those lines of quality. Masters yep. of the Universe, all the other Golan Globus films, um, but it's not good either. So that's kind of too bad. It's it, uh, it is parts of it are kind of fun. Yep, um, a movie that uh, I, fair or unfair, I I really associate this next movie with like the Reagan era. <laughs> well, um, we're in yeah, the heart I mean, of it now. Yeah, we're in, so yeah, and it's in the um, third year of his first administration. Yeah, um, and so we we have um, uh, Chevy Chase, Gregory Hines, and uh, Sigourney Weaver. I can't believe we didn't talk about this more on the Sigourney Weaver deep dive. Uh, well, but, uh, that was best Sigourney <laughs> Weaver performances. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And I stand uh, but, <laughs> by those ten performances being better than this one. I agree. I agree. But this movie is a deal of the century. Well, um, it, okay. It, it it has this Caddyshack, like Ghostbusters style cast. And we're right in the heart of when that, those sorts of things are happening. So I yep. saw all those former Saturday Night Live stars. Anytime they showed up in something, I saw it. And this is one of those movies. This is a movie. This is, movie's a satire though. And even though there are tons of jokes in it, there are no, hardly any laughs. It's directed by William Friedkin, of all Friedkin. people, who brought you French Connection and The Exorcist. He has a massive autobiography, my life and film style book out there. This film gets exactly zero mentions in it. It's like it doesn't <laughs> exist. Okay. <laughs> All that said, and it's a satire about the arms industry, it is an yeah. absolute send-up of Reagan-era 80s. It, it, however, it's told from a salesperson's point of view, which is a tricky place for a story like this to be told from. Um, Chevy Chase plays an arms dealer in the, you know, in the early 80s who while he's making some deal for a bunch of crap in some terrible country whose name we're not told and isn't important, stumbles across a, a fellow sales, a fellow Western salesperson in the same hotel with him, I think Christmas Eve, played by the great Wallace Shawn. And with all due respect to Princess Bride, my favorite ever Wallace Shawn screen performance is in Deal of the Century. He mm. takes stage in this scene like nothing you've ever seen before. He's this suicidal guy who's trying to make a deal and has been sitting by the phone for days <laughs> waiting for it to ring so that he can sign on the bottom line because he's he's your typical like Gil from The Simpsons strung out crazy yeah, sales yeah. guy. And he's about to shoot himself because he's gone mad as part of this process. Chevy Chase's character seems to talk him down from that, but then as soon as he turns his back, he does indeed kill himself. And, of course, the phone starts to ring. And Chevy picks up the phone and becomes yep. embroiled in this crazy, weird conspiracy to sell these uh, failed drones. It's, you can't make this up. These uh, pilotless airplane drones that uh, this fictional arms company Luckup has come up with, that when they demonstrate, 
in my one of my favorite scenes in the movie when they demonstrated it in front of the U.S. military and everything to make the sale. It went mm-hmm. berserk and started shooting at everybody because yep. they think because it got wet when they washed it for the show. And there's this great scene. I can't. Who's the is Robert? Who's the name of the bad guy? And it's so awesome in it. Uh, um, it's his best career performance uh, in my opinion. Let's see, we have. Uh, is it the guy playing Striker? Yes. Yeah, that's Vince Edwards. Vince Edwards, so good in this movie. Yeah. He's this is if the movie could have afforded another star, it's already got Sigourney Weaver, Chevy Chase, and Gregory Hines. If it could afford another star, this guy would be played by Dabney Coleman. But it's and Dabney Dabney would have been great in it too. It's a perfect role for him. But Vince is maniacal in it. He just he's just biting off this part in this way that is delightful. And you see all these guys, first of all. When the thing goes, and this is satire, so you got to give it all a little thought for you to really realize it's funny. And a lot of this movie, you realize it's funny too late. You're not laughing at it when it happens. You're, you laugh about it when you think of it. And this is the perfect sequence. Okay, drone pilot. They're all proud of it. They're all these military bigwigs sitting in these grandstands watching the thing do maneuvers when it freaks out and starts shooting at the cars in the parking lot and shooting at them. And the guys in the control room can't figure out what's wrong with it. And while they're trying to fix it, the air conditioner breaks. So you got two of these technicians trying to fix the air conditioner with like wrenches and stuff because they think that might be the problem. You got other guys doing this stuff. Vince Edwards, the guy making the deal, the executive in charge of the creation of Robocop, essentially. That's what it reminds yeah, yeah. me of. It comes into this trailer and he's like, What? <laughs> he sees this chaos going on. He's like, What are you guys doing? He's like, um, yeah, actually, we're not sure what's going on. We think it might be the when they washed it for the show. It should be fine when it dries off. Uh, it, it'll work tomorrow. And Vince Edwards has this great line. He's like, tomorrow? There is no tomorrow, you assholes. Have you ever heard of rain? <laughs> and they're all kind of, huh? What? <laughs> yep. It, yep. It's it's brilliant. And of course, so the thing, so the thing's not going to be bought by any legitimate people with deep pockets. So the, the story of the thing is Chevy is appropriated by the company in place of this guy who killed himself to sell this to third world dictators and people like that so that they can at least make some of their money back on it. Mm -hmm. Sigourney Weaver plays the widow of Wallace Shawn's character. Uh, Gregory Hines in a great role, really weird role for him, but in a great role for him, he plays an ex uh, test pilot who's a really great engineer who is brought onto the, even though he's found Jesus and wants nothing to do with war or violence or anything, anything negative, really. He, he's brought on by Chevy for old time's sake to help him figure out the engineering problems with this thing so they can sell it. And it's just, it's got so much memorable, crazy stuff in it. It's It's got some really objectionable stuff in it because it's a really it really shows the ugly arms industry mixed with the, like, trade show sleaziness of that world and the cynicalness of the, of the arms industry and of selling war. It, it's just... And of exploiting the third world and, you know, mm-hmm. there's a scene mm-hmm. where... Uh, where the dictator, it's like his final 
you know, nibble that he wants from this deal for these th to actually lay down the money for these things is he wants to sleep with Sigourney's character. And Chevy's desperate enough that without asking her, he goes and proposes it to her, which she agrees to do in the movie, which is played for laughs. But again, if you really think about what all that is, it's horrific. It's horrific. Mm -hmm. But it was important. It was Sigourney's first go around with these crazy comedy guys. Uh, like I said, a year later in Ghostbusters, that would become an iconic thing. But it it was an early sign that she was willing to do that sort of work, which was fun because she was a very even in those even in this film, even in that film, she's this very dignified presence. You know, she's a person that doesn't look like she belongs in this story, which is of course its charm. Yep. Hines is fantastic. The film has a really pretty Firefox-like dogfight at the end between yeah. Hines in a in a stolen F-19 shooting at this peacemaker. It's it's you know a very exciting and very expensive sequence. I like it. I like that it's, movie. I liked it then because I just liked it. It was funny and exciting and all those things you want. But the more you think about it, the smarter, the really good satire that is. It really is a Reagan-era movie. At the time, it felt like a, a Reagan-era movie to me. Now, when I think about it, it's a very brave, you know, it's just anti-sort of Top Gun, anti-Booyah story. Yeah. It is. It really shows a dark side of this stuff with a character who's really super morally compromised and needs and needs that we all the world needs him to fail even though you're rooting for him and Chevy's Chevy's great in it because he he's his usual improv -y, goofy self but he there's something else about him he's a darker guy and he gets that and I think Chase is interested in playing a part that has some depth to it mm -hmm. there's a dark arms dealer who you know his brother-in-law says to him they're having beers out on the porch and he's like you know, you say you're going here, you say you're going there, you send us a postcard, and then two weeks later, these places don't exist anymore. What, what's going on with you, man? We're, we're, your sister's worried about you. I mean, we're worried about you. So, you know, like, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you can tell it, he's got a dark soul. And we're relieved to see him on a used car, car lot at the end in defeat. Yeah. He wins the girl. He takes a job selling shit because what else is he going to do but you're relieved to see some normalcy come into his life because that merry-go-round he's on only ends one way and right. it, it it's just it's a deeper movie again I don't know how much freaking has to do with it he's not yeah. claiming credit for it the script though I think is really really smart I really do it's uh, yeah I, I mean it's it's again it's kind of weird that he literally won't talk about it at all I don't. I don't know it's that like it's that, a. Yeah. You know, David Lynch won't talk about Dune. David Fincher won't talk about Alien Three. I. I don't know that it's that, or that he just doesn't have anything. He doesn't feel he has anything interesting to say about it. I have no idea. Yeah. But. Yeah. Um, hard people right. to work with. Vince Edwards, Chevy Chase. It, it would have been a set where, if there were any disagreements, would have been a tough go of it for any director. I suspect, and it's Friedkin doing comedy, which, as far as I know, he never did before or after. So there's that aspect to it too, and it it bombed at the box office. It was a rather high profile, expensive film that bombed at the box office, but alongside, you know, as a triple feature at night on HBO, alongside Police Academy and whatever dr detroit like it fits perfectly and it and yeah. and yet i think even compared to those things it's much more substantive film 
Um, all right, let's move on to Uncommon Valor. Uh, oh, this yeah. is, yeah, this is, um, you know, a this Vietnam. This is the film that Rambo, First Blood Part Two ripped off. Yeah, co completely ripped off. Yeah. Completely ripped off the entire storyline of this movie. This movie's about a, um, a, a bunch of, like, let's get the old Vietnam gang together and go back and rescue some POWs. Let's, let's win the Vietnam War. There were a lot yeah. of Hollywood fantasies that that was the fantasy. Let's get it right this time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, but, Rambo even Rambo even says that. Are we gonna are we gonna win this time? Yeah. Are we gonna? I don't want to go if it's just to lose Vietnam again. Yeah, and this is you know and this is well we got to go get my son. My son is trapped over there. I think he's still Gene alive. Hackman. It, it, yeah, Gene Hackman. Who brings a lot going. of gravitas to what is a really really dumb story. Um, mm -hmm. Patrick Swayze's in it. It's it got a really great cast. The uh, the dirty dozen ish type crew that they get together are really, really fun. The big, yep. the big shootout and stuff at the end is, you know, where they actually do find these, this prison camp and infiltrate it, um, is really shot in a, you're unlike Rambo. It, it's not shot in a big cinematic action way. It's very much, you're on the ground with these people running around, you know, it's a very combat, has a lot of combat, or at least it feels like it has a lot of combat integrity, military yeah. integrity to it. Um, mm -hmm. But it really is a roundup movie. It's about these guys. It's about this father who's obsessed with saving his son. It gets these people together and he goes from place to place and they, they train together and you get to know them all. And then they, it, it's like, the, it's the structured, like the dirty dozen, but the, the kernel of the idea, which is a much more Reagan era idea than the deal of the century is, is let's, let's win the, let's win the Vietnam war for the Gipper basically. I mean, that, it's, yeah. that really is sort of the feel of it. Um, but I like it and I watched it a lot of times on cable. I like the, I like the wacky cast characters, even though it's not a comedy at all. Um, you know, I liked all the mercenaries and their personalities and stuff. And this is the bomb specialist and this is the pilot and this is the, this and that that's fun stuff. I mean, it, it, that's why there's so many movies like that because it works. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's Hackman. I mean, Hackman, I don't know what Hackman saw in the character, the obsessed father or whatever, but it, it works because he's a part of it. And I believe it is directed by the guy who directed the first first blood movie, which is actually good. Uh, Ted Kojic. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, um, what that? What, what was? Yeah, Ted Kojic. First Blood. Yeah, sorry, yeah, First, First Blood. Blood. Yeah, sorry, First it, Blood. Yeah, it 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 feels more like that. It's cinema of that style. It it has a it has mm -hmm. a artfulness to it and a visual flair to it and all that stuff and so on. and and again Hackman at the center of it. If it had been. You know, uh, just to keep quoting Rambo, if it had Richard Crenna at the center of it, it wouldn't have been nearly as good. And that's nothing against Richard. It's just Hackman is it need that a film like that needed a movie star with clout and with Oscars on his shelf to really make the thing fly. And that's what it got. So fun one. Yep. Uh, all right. Last, um, last, certainly not least, because this is a movie that was also very ubiquitous on, on HBO. Oh, my God. Uh, this might be. Time. Maybe Beastmaster, but this would be a very close second for how many times did they play this on pay cable mm. over and over and over again. And this was a film yep. saw by nobody. This was a film that it took a year for it to get on pay cable before anyone saw it. 
because it was truly not viewed by anyone in the world, so much so that the songs on its soundtrack became a hit in the summer of 84 after it had made its run on cable TV, not when its soundtrack was released right. in 1983, whose record company had to scramble to reprint these albums, which <laughs> eventually became a platinum-selling soundtrack. Uh, it's a movie about music. It's about rock, the golden age of rock and roll, really. It's an absolute baby boomer nostalgia fest uh, where, the, where at least at this time, he became something else as he got older, but at least this time, the, the most the baby boomeriest guy that you could get to make you relive your old <laughs> memories or that you could, as an older aged, like sellout yuppie baby boomer could identify with was Tom Berenger. Yep. Who plays himself as a guy in the eighties and a guy in the fifties, really not very effectively. I mean, the performance is good, but that's just not. Yep. And we of course are talking about the movie Eddie and the Cruisers. Eddie and the Cruisers. And it, there's also this conceit that Eddie, played by the great Michael Parry in a great role, um, and I, you have to give John Cafferty, who also plays him, wrote and sang all the songs, basically. Right. Uh, yep. Yeah, that's, it, that's part of the performance. It's a big part of the performance as well. Um, he plays this supposed, supposedly ahead of his time sort of roots rock and roll guy that uh, Tom Berenger hooks up with plays plays a uh, organ and piano in his band. And he goes around and plays the usual events like a bar band would plays in the bars, plays the wedding receptions, you know, just does that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Um, but it's the interesting thing about the movie is it's a split time movie. And I think that's why the nostalgia works so well. I think if it was, first of all, if it was just a movie that took place in the fifties, Tom Berenger wouldn't get to play a teenager in it. Yeah, as that would make no sense. And as it is, it doesn't really make any sense except, except for the fact that there's real value in the same actor playing the same part in both eras. That's important, and we can accept it on that level. We can look at it and say, well, this is his vision of himself and his memory. He's the one telling us this story. But there's this this guy, you know, like all rock and roll people who die before their time, Eddie. Uh, right when he was about to get a record deal and hit it big and he had apparently made this album that was like way ahead of its time and he just disappeared off the face of the earth. And now there, I can't remember the setup, but he gets a letter from him or somebody does. It's this mystery in the present day where they think they might, he might be out there and they might be finding him and what happened to him really and what really is the story behind him. And yeah. that gives us an extent it gives us an excuse to travel through the fifties with this or late fifties. It's really a mid sixties movie, which Quentin Tarantino will tell you is still the fifties, <laughs> you know, the sixties, as we think of them from about, it's really when the Beatles started getting serious, it's from about 67 to 73 ish. Yeah. That's what we think of when we say the sixties. Otherwise from the end of world war two, all the way till 1965, that's all the fifties, baby. Yeah. Enjoy 20 years of Eisenhower and, you know what I mean? That yeah. sort of thing. And that's, it's important that that's the 60s that this takes place in, the 50s, 60s. Sorry to make that so complicated, but yeah. I agree with Quentin's theory. From a pop culture standpoint, he's spot on. That is absolutely true. Um, and that's the part we're nostalgia for. We're a little nostalgia for being hippies, but not really because that's, Vietnam and that's complicated and you know blah 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 you know yeah. but but that sort of sock hop you know 
thing. Like they're super into that. American graffiti proved that. Other things have proved that. It's the 80s mystery part of this, and none of it really works, and there's no real satisfying payoff to it necessarily. You do sort of find out the details. Um, That's not what works in the movie. It is what drives the movie along, so I'm glad it's there, but that's not what works in the movie. What works in the movie are these great songs by John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band. And watching the just 50s era heartthrob Michael Paré sing them. And this interaction between this this relatively innocent suburban kid Mm -hmm. mixing with this bad boy rock star and their sort of weird brotherly competitive effect on each other. And the sort of romances that they share and are competitive about. Like all that works. All that's really interesting. And I dig Eddie and the Cruisers. And like I say, it's, it's... well, this wasn't a countdown, but it tops off this list, and it's appropriate that it does because it it that film is beloved by many, and it absolutely made its bones on pay cable mm-hmm. it, without a doubt. Well, that it, that film is nowhere if it's not for home video coming into its own, and HBO and Showtime and Cinemax just showing it constantly. It it was such a huge hit on cable. Embassy Pictures re-released it, the film for one week in theaters. Uh, again, uh, and it made more money in its say. week and a half or whatever release than it did on its original release. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Like I yeah. said, it's to me, it's a summer of '84 movie, so we're cheating a little bit. But technically, and, well, yeah, technically, it came out in autumn of '83, so we're, you know, right? Because it was. I mean, and it was. I, I mean, and it says that that it was um, due to a scheduling error error a scheduling error it was supposed to be a summer movie but it didn't come out until september and all of a sudden you know all the teenagers that it was hoping to attract they're back in school and so it, it went away no a lot stopped. of a, yeah. an inordinate amount of these are september october films actually <laughs> yep. non-halloween yep. september and october films where that's not the worst time in that era for a film to be released the worst time is in between the oscars and like may that used and now March is like a big blockbuster month, but that used to be just a dumping ground for the crap you wanted to get rid of. Right before mm-hmm. the summer season came, you just would unload your garbage whenever all your all the kids in college were doing finals and nobody was paying attention to films. Um, the second era is that right as summer's ending, the back to school, everybody's mind is on other things, and that's where and that's. That has become the new, like, it, even we're heading into that right now. That really is sort of the doldrums. The horror movies and things sort of keep that alive because, and serial killer movies, you know. But it's not a good time for a film like yep. this to come out. This this film was a phenomena, Summer of 84. The songs were on the radio every day. The Everyone was watching the movie. You could watch it at home already. That's when it made its bones um, yeah. almost an entire year later. But but that's because of cable. I mean, that's, that's where it was. And that, yeah. And that's where, I mean, and you know, that's suddenly with cable and home video and stuff, that's when movies, uh, you know, that that's, that's where, that's why a show like ours exists because well, that's so where many we of discovered them took on a lot a, of them. A, a, a second life or really found their yep. first life. That is true to various degrees, but that's true of every movie on this list. Cause some of these barely found a life on cable even right. if they you know but that that's that's where they're remembered they were they were all basically theatrical flops blue lagoon yeah. not so much 
that's to me that's generational. I feel like we found it on cable. We found the naughty thing on cable. You know, I don't. We're yeah. never going to talk about hard bodies or any of that crap on here. I can promise you. Mm-hmm. Although that certainly has place in our childhood memories, but that film, if there's a film that has a bit of an exploitation twinge to it, that you kind of, as a ten year old, you kind of couldn't believe what you were seeing on your TV. You know, that was the experience of Blue Lagoon. That's why I included it. But yeah, Joel's yep. right. It it home video. You know, we talked about it before. Back in the day, they didn't when they were making movies in the forties and fifties. They just they didn't have any clue that they'd be watched on TV for generations, that they'd yep. have home video sales in the year 2000. That was unthinkable to them. <laughs> if the films, they put films out in re-releases sometimes, but they, they, they just had no sense of the value of the history of the thing. And of course, film fans that are a couple generations beyond those experiences, we're, we're probably the last generation to really be obsessed with that sort of film history. It's really yeah. probably the boomers that are more than us, but still, uh, yeah. this show encapsulates that. It was requested by us. Like I said, it was. I had an idea for something like this for a long time, and we're going to do a few more of these sort of ideas, a little more genre-specific yep. ideas. But when we asked for a request, Bill, Bill, my buddy from that era, who we saw a bunch of movies together, Bill was in the theater with me when we saw Strange Brew together. I suspect six pack as well, but I, that I can't verify. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he said, do, do, do movies that like you pretty much only watched on HBO. And I was like, well, was, we're going to do that. You have my word. Yeah. I have to do some thinking about it, but you have my word. We're going to do that. And here it is. Yep. And here it is. Here's our first, uh, here's our first trip down. There's more. There's uh, HBO. I saw Memory it on Lane. HBO 1984 mm-hmm. to 1986. Still to come. Correct. Correct. Uh, all right. So uh, before we ever do that, we're not, it's, we're not talking about, we're doing these. Uh, we'll get no, to no, other it's not a series. That. This is for now. This is yep. all you get next now. week. We're super excited to get the movie club back together again. To yep. Movie talk club. About, yep. Go ahead. Talk about some yeah. dog movies. Yep. Indeed, that's going to be super fun. Uh, we're all, and then we're the, all three of them in the movie club, dog lovers. So that's, that'll be a fun. Indeed, indeed. Uh, and uh, we also have we are talking about our Halloween. Um, we're putting together our Halloween uh, show uh, with friends of the show, Michael and Rob, joining us for that. That will be super fun. And yeah, uh, it was really fun to have those guys together for the Stephen King episodes. This episode's a little more esoteric, but we, I just think it'll still be fun. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, I'm watching a whole bunch of current Halloween releases that our day after Halloween release will uh, run down for you. And we got another, see if we can squeeze another spooky, spooky movie idea in there somewhere. We'll, uh, if we can think of one, we will. Right, right. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, so yeah, that's what we have coming up. And we um, are, we, thank you so much for joining us on the movie show with Joel and Ryan. Love you guys. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan. Remember, all views and opinions represented in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the speaker and do not represent those people, institutions, or organizations that the speaker may or may not be associated with, unless explicitly stated. None of these views and opinions were intended to malign or deceive. And now, here's the producers, circa 1982, to play us out.